0: everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev On Air, the Rev On Ver podcast. Today marks a very special beginning to dedicating our podcast to the theme of regeneration in partnership with Dr. Zach Bush and Farmer's Footprint. Over the next 12 episodes, we will have some incredible pioneers in the space of regenerative farming, agriculture, and overall efforts to bring back soil, planetary, and ultimately human health. Zach was the first person I ever heard speak about the importance of soil a few years back, and I have followed his work with Farmer's Footprint ever since. I can't wait to get into it. But before we launch this incredibly exciting regenerative series, I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors who are in of themselves helping towards a more regenerative future. Vivo Barefoot is more than just a footwear line. They promote a natural lifestyle and are on a mission to reconnect people into the natural world and human natural potential from the ground up, foot by foot, person by person, with their incredible B Corps certified shoes. Vivo Barefoot was founded by modern day cobblers Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from seven generations of cobblers. They've traveled the world and worked with its best shoemakers, modern and indigenous. After all that exploring, they came back to the beginning, to the principle of barefoot design and the original purpose of shoes, simply protection from cuts, cold and heat. They're on a quest to make the perfect footwear because the less shoes we make, the better it is for our feet, human movement and planetary health. Vivo Barefoot is created for maximum feeling and freedom of movement, proven to increase foot strength by up to 60%. Rewild your feet to regain your human potential with strength, agility, and balance. As Vivo says, and we here at Rev believe so much, when we reconnect to the natural world, we reconnect to ourselves. Get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order with Revonver 15 at www.vivo.com. And that's Revonver 15. I also want to say a quick thank you to Kiki Milk, our new favorite plant milk for children and adults alike. Kiki Milk is the packaged plant based milk that's as clean, whole and simple as the one you would make at home. Created alongside pediatricians and nutritionists, Kiki Milk is certified organic and crafted with a nourishing blend of high quality organic whole foods for a more nutritionally complete beverage. So busy parents can confidently fuel the needs of the growing children and adults in their household kiki milk works with one of the first certified regenerative organic companies to source their coconut sugar for their line kiki milk has three different plant-based milks macnut milk chocolate milk and their original milk which is made from oats and coconuts and is completely delicious they also have a kiki butter a spread made from seeds and oats which the whole family can enjoy as a quick snack. it's such a brilliant nut free option to explore the brand and to shop their amazing selection, head over to kikimilk.com. That's K-I-K-I-M-I-L-K.com. So now on to my incredible conversation with Zach Bush, a man on a mission to regenerate our soils, our planet, and our collective health. Zach is actually the person I credit with first connecting my own awareness of soil health, glyphosate destruction on the environment and our wellness, and the solutions that we find in farming the land in a way that allows us to grow food that actually heals and provides true nutrition. He co-founded Farmers Footprint, which is on a mission to help farmers around the world accelerate regenerative food systems as a means to restore human and planetary health. He is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Dr. Zacks founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and industries to work together for a healthy future for us all. This is a timely conversation that will hopefully spark many more. So now onto my conversation and the launch of our Farmers' Footprint and Revlon podcast series. So Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. It's um, it's a real honor, as I mentioned before. Um, you sort of changed the way I thought about a lot of things five years ago. So thank you, and I'm really excited that we're getting to touch upon so many things with our farmers' footprint collaboration here at Revolver. And it's just amazing to kick this off with you. So. I I kind of wanted to reverse all the way back to the beginning of your career and I think it's really fascinating that you actually started off in conventional medicine and you know particularly chemotherapy development so you were really aware of what was going on in the space and you know I think all of us can relate to the fact that cancer autoimmune diseases serious health issues just have become more and more prevalent and it's on everyone's mind to some extent. So can you tell us a little bit about your history where you began and how that started to lead you into maybe a more, let's call it progressive space?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. First of all, thank you for the partnership with the nonprofit. I think this is really exciting era that we are in, in that we are starting to see brands and products start to understand that they have the opportunity to be part of a learning experience, an educational platform to bring forth change. And so I just honor you guys as an incredible platform for, you know, health awareness, but also health education. And and we really value the partnership with that nonprofit level, because I think it's indicative of the world that we all want to live in, which is one that is constantly co-creating, constantly collaborative, and no longer in our siloed kind of you know, self-talk, self-think uh, approaches. So uh, just celebrating who you are and what you've brought to life through through all of that. So thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs>
1: to, to back up to um, the question, I guess, is that, you know, my journey started, I think, very holistically. I was going into engineering and then in 1993, ended up uh, working with an international group of midwives over in the Philippines birthing babies, which I had absolutely no medical training for, and they trained me on the job, and it was so spectacular to see human life coming forth from Uh, These women who were so impoverished, so often starving, and yet the health coming out of them was just amazing. These children were so resilient and vibrant and healthy, and it was spectacular to see that our, our modern version of poverty cannot really keep down the human spirit, let alone the human biology, from thriving And so I thought, my gosh, there's nothing more spectacular to engage with. And suddenly engineering and robotics, which was the place I thought I was going, seemed incredibly boring and lifeless. And uh, so I took that turn. So I came out of this very holistic, miraculous experience of the miracle of life and um, went on the long journey. It was 17 years in academia at that point. And so you can imagine, though, this time in 1993, um, I begin that health journey. And by the time I finished in 2010, by that time I had a couple of subspecialties in medicine. And I was doing the chemotherapy research you mentioned and things like that. But it turns out I was exactly the generation that would see the health of humanity collapse. I was the generation of doctors that would be witness to the most devastating human health event in history, which would be the, the nuclear bomb of chronic disease that was set off in the 1990s. And it turns out that 1993, was the year that we first developed gluten sensitivity and celiac disease as diagnoses because it was two years following the debut of herbicide treatment as a crop drying agent or a desiccant on wheat and so unbeknownst to me at the time i was about to witness the collapse of human biology at the soil level of health and uh, it would take me about 20 almost 25 years later that I would kind of be able to tell that story in retrospect but I really credit the timing of my career to everything that's come out of me and my laboratory and all the incredible minds that I'm surrounded by our timing was perfect in that we were the very first generations that could have witnessed this biologic collapse of human biology so it's not that I was smarter than anybody else or our lab was better than any other lab. It was just that our timing could not have been more perfect to witness the collapse and to be able to see it through the lens of cancer turned out to be a really big gift as well. Cancer is the end stage of chronic inflammation in a lot of ways, the, the ultimate isolation that happens at the cellular level from a loss of connection to the soil. And so my career designed itself in timing and in content to allow me to start to put those dots together by by 2013, my whole world was just, you know, fracturing at the same right. It was building a new universe and and I was thinking differently every single minute it felt like and I just couldn't get my grounding because every couple of seconds we were asking new questions that had never been asked and getting answers that we didn't expect and having to re- Honestly, you know, this is only ten years, eleven years back. I didn't know that human healing could happen. I had been trained that human disease happens, but healing is something that we do not study, we do not understand, we do not pay attention to in allopathic medicine. And so, to see that start to spring forth in my clinic, I had left the the University of Virginia in 2010. By 2011, had a pretty vibrant nutrition center where we were teaching people to reverse chronic disease through through food. And it took me a couple of years in that space to realize that the food wasn't working in everybody. It was only about a third of our patients that were actually reaching the milestones of health and healing that we were expecting. Um, And it took some time to question the food itself. Uh, But that was ultimately the journey that kind of that arc of career took me through. And my cancer journey was specific to chemotherapy development was around nutrients, which, again, was a gift. I was developing a vitamin A compound to kill Uh, tumor cells and it was exciting because you didn't have to kill the tumor cell as you would with a poison which was typical of our chemotherapy you know mindset of give a poison at the right level and the cancer cells die and hopefully the human recovers instead you were giving a nutrient at such a high dose that the cancer couldn't handle it because the cancer is inherently damaged metabolism and so you're basically overwhelming the, the, the cell with nutrition. And the result is it, it commits suicide. That cell disappears. And so you don't have to poison the body. The cancer cells will eliminate themselves in the face of overwhelming nutrition. And so that was my debut into realizing, why don't we just have a nutrition center? So I tried to start the nutrition center at the University of Virginia for reversing chronic disease. And I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed so naive and excited for this. And I thought, my gosh, I'm going to change academia in a heartbeat. And everybody's going to do this. And every university is going to have a healing center built on food. And within six months, the university, you know, bureaucracy had shut down my idea and plan to launch this clinic. And ironically, it was the dietitians that were really at the tip of the spear of destroying that program. Uh, because I was trying to roll out a a plant based nutrition program that was nutrient dense through through the delivery of high fiber diets through vegetables fruit as the foundation and this was opposite of the food pyramid that the dietitians and opposite of the diabetes education that was coming out of my field of endocrinology which was my second subspecialty. And and they were telling everybody to eat a low carbohydrate, high protein diet, and I was coming in saying, you know, showing that you could reverse diabetes with carbohydrates, and and so it was just in the face of conventional, you know, nutrition science at the time, which turns out has very little science behind it. The whole food pyramid, all that was actually designed through marketing material from meat and dairy industries in the 1970s and 80s. So. So it was just a long you know, journey into realizing that our education system was bought long ago by special interests, and our science has been shaped by that, not, not, not just through the money, but actually through the thought process of science. It's pretty interesting to realize that if you don't ask the question, you never get the answer. And if you're only paid to ask some questions, you only get some answers. And so when we only get paid to ask questions about disease... We never find out that health and healing is possible. And so why does academia look like it is? The questions that you're paid to ask are in a very narrow, narrow vein that that all lead to commercial, you know, dollars at the end of that question string. So that's that's how we find ourselves in a world of scientists who seem to believe that we aren't connected to nature.
0: Right. And, you know, just to sort of back up, because I think it's really interesting how you said, you know, at 2010, you were seeing this, as you said, like nuclear bomb of disease. And can you speak a little bit about, you know, like what you were seeing and how you started to think about like, okay, hang on, why is this all happening right now? And I feel like because that would eventually lead you back to a moment in time of discovering sort of the root cause of all of this.
1: Yeah, um a lot of this came out of the work of of my chief scientist Dr. Gilday. He's out of uh Johns Hopkins originally. He's a geneticist and uh microbiologist and his you know background had prepared him. He had worked for the Department of Defense actually working on uh, biologic warfare um in the form of uh, viruses and and distributing viruses as a biologic warfare agent is what the DOD was working on at the time and he was In charge of detecting those viruses so um, big sprayers were being put on 747s and all this to to distribute viruses and his job is to detect those viruses at the ground level to see how how fast we could could detect those kinds of threats and and how we uh, you know can work with viruses so he he was coming out of this deep genetic thing and what he was seeing was a, a connection to environmental toxicity as more important than viruses in the environment as a determinant for health and disease and so by the early 2000s he was doing you know lots of different research he's one of the world experts on kidney uh, health and kidney disease and he's one of the world experts on blood pressure and its relationship to kidneys done a ton of work in cancer all kinds of things he's just he's a genius um, level scientist and observer and by the 2000s he was you know looking deep at the chemical herbicides as a specific you know variant that was rearing its head towards you know during his time with the department of defense and he was seeing that shift in public health there so he was deeply looking at it from kind of that uh, kind of bio warfare side which is actually how our herbicides really debuted and so we were developing herbicides as chemical warfare in the form of agent orange which was the first really widespread success in the organophosphate m- molecule family. Organophosphates are a very specific salt in in biochemistry that poisons enzyme systems so that life stops it it kills you know any single cell or multicellular life that it touches it, it's disrupting the ability for metabolism to happen. If a cell can't get access to energy, it dies very quickly.
0: And that's what we were spraying in like the Vietnam War and stuff, right? That's what we were doing that was so incredibly disturbing when we were dropping this sort of stuff on others.
1: That's right. And so the Department of Defense had long kind of been at the forefront of understanding the energetics of biology and disrupting that, you know, through Agent Orange. Monsanto was the company that was making Agent Orange, and then when the war wrapped up, suddenly they lost you know, the majority of their, their income stream. And so they were a small company in the 1970s, and um, they they debuted another organophosphate that was slightly less toxic um, in the form of glyphosate. And glyphosate was patented in 1959 and never put on the market, and a Japanese researcher developed that. And that organophosphate would be purchased in 1974 by glyphosate or I mean, by Monsanto and then put on the market as Roundup in 1976. And the difference between glyphosate and Roundup is about 16 molecules that they added to the to the glyphosate to make it penetrate cells even more effectively. So they basically wanted to make it more toxic to cellular metabolism to make it more effective as a weed killer. And in 1976, when they debuted Roundup, it was a gift from God for farmers, like farmers were fighting weeds and all of this because we were in the post-World War II farming era, which in the United States and really globally, but definitely in the U.S., was a story of a loss of labor. And so after World War II, none of the farm kids came back to the Midwest to go farm again. They all went to the cities. They all you know went to higher education. There was this huge exodus from the middle of the country out to the coast. There was a huge exodus to high-tech jobs. And you know the Industrial Revolution was well afoot by the end of World War II. And the US was going to become a leader in industrialization and blah, blah, blah. That took everybody off the farm and so farmers were now you know aging without kids on the farm and they were under labored and so a good weed killer to come along for them to be able to spray weeds you know effectively especially at the beginning of the season when you need to kill everything in the field so you can get your seeds into the soil and have them unopposed by you know other other growth was a boon and so debuting in 1976 by 1980 it was the biggest you know herbicide on the market but you had to be very careful about spraying it because if it ever touched your corn or soybean, it would kill, kill your crop. And so it had to be kept away from your crop. And uh, it, But it was a water-soluble toxin. And what farmers didn't realize at the time is it was washing off their farms into our rivers. What homeowners didn't realize, but in the 1980s, we're spraying dandelions in our driveway and in our yards and all this. And we're starting to wash this stuff into our drinking water, into our rainwater. And so by the 1980s, we're starting to drink in small quantities, this chemical glyphosate and, uh, and the sister chemicals that would come through it in the Roundup formula. And by 1984 or so, you've got you know, Nancy Reagan, the first lady, announcing a war on obesity. And so in this short period of time between 76 and the early 80s, we developed an obesity epidemic in the United States for the first time. And when you realize that the mechanism of obesity is a loss of mitochondria inside of human cells, so they can no longer use the calories that is being consumed by the organism, and that backs up into fatty liver and then backs up to peripheral fat and all the rest. And so you get obese when you can no longer use your calories. The, the, the theory that overeating causes obesity is just frankly wrong. It, you, you know, Teenagers prove this all the time. The skinniest you've ever been was when you ate the most calories in your life. What happened between your teens when you could eat, you know, four giant pizzas and never gain a pound and 45 when you eat one slice of pizza and you gain weight is the workforce inside the cells. The metabolism that's inherent to our youth dies off as we expose our mitochondria, our organic garden to toxins. And so it's the progression of death of life within us at the microbial level, at the mitochondria level that leads to the aging process, the slowing of metabolism. And so we did that, not only to the US, but by the 1990s globally, we had contaminated the planet with Roundup. And the company itself, Monsanto, had no idea they were going to be as successful as they were. In the 1980s, they were already publishing their own cancer data. If you put this much Roundup into a mouse or a rabbit, they get cancer very quickly. So that stuff was published in 1988 and all that stuff. So they knew that at some level, this cancer, this was a cancer causing agent, just as Agent Orange had been. All the organophosphates can cause cancer because they ultimately disrupt cell communication. And so that was the backdrop of kind of how we got this chemical, agricultural, military complex going in the post-World War II, post-Vietnam era. We were using military technology back into our food system And you can start to see how we slowly poisoned, you know, a planet. So this was the backdrop, again, of Dr. Gilday and the rest of us in our laboratories. We started to see health food fail. We had all this backdrop of a couple of decades of observational relationships between chemical warfare, the agricultural warfare on soil and the death of nutrients within that. What we didn't know at the time was how much glyphosate was being carried in food. Um, When I say we, my, my laboratory this had been measured by the EPA, USDA, and lots of other, you know, governmental groups around the world were aware that we were starting to get this chemical in pretty high concentrations. By 2010, we the groups were starting to measure this in our environment. And by that time, 85% of the air we breathe is contaminated with Roundup. 85% of the water we drink is contaminated. 85% of the rainfall is contaminated with uh, detectable levels of Roundup. And today in my laboratory, we study glyphosate on a daily basis now for, for the last almost 15 years now. And, and that that data is showing us on a daily basis as we continue to dissect different different mechanisms of actions of Roundups damage to human cells. We're we're able to show lots of different different disruptions in that metabolism or that energetic capacity of cells and their ability to talk to each other. And so it's this isolating effect of, of glyphosate that had really you know, been there. So that set the table for our discoveries, you know, back in uh, a decade ago as to the relationship between food system and human biology. and then ultimately, how soil is actually the antidote to this crisis that we've put ourselves in,
0: yeah. And I'm very excited to get into the soil element because that really is the basis of everything that we'll be talking about. But just just to play devil's advocate for people that might be listening and saying, you know, asking this question because, You know, my husband and I talk about this all the time. You know, he's like, it's very hard to convince the average consumer that when they go into the grocery store, for instance, they could be buying food that is causing cancer, or that they can go to their local hardware store and get a weed killer that is this toxic. And, you know, I think a lot of people might be like, if something was honestly this toxic, you know, Monsanto had studies on this in the 1980s that were available at some point, the government, business regulations, somebody would have stepped in. But you're saying that's not the case. So can you speak a little bit to anyone out there who might be like, this seems really far fetched that it could be this pervasive with no one having done anything yet? What would your response to that be?
1: Well, we're certainly I mean, there's people all over the world trying to do stuff about this for sure. So, you know, decades into this, scientists all over the world are aware of this crisis and books have been written on it. And the media picked up at different times. And so it's not it's not a story that's unknown at all. Um, it is a story that has still reached a minority of scientists and certainly a minority of consumers at this point. But but that's changed a lot. Organic food has come online. And when it came online, nobody could figure out why it was even important. And if you go abroad right now, when I'm working in Africa, it's still confusing to them. I'm like well, Everything's organic. What, what do you mean an organic tomato? Every tomato on the planet is organic. And so the... It was good branding for the industry because they it could have been called toxin free food, mm. which if it had been named that. Then everybody would buy it. Right. And because it, the implication would be if it's not toxin free, then it's toxin loaded. And so organic turned out to be a very clever branding for this new new kind of industry standard. That made it sound like oh it's just it's just better it's better than usual you know but it's but it's not the opposite right and so i think it was very carefully designed to not be disruptive to consumer behavior why is that like why hasn't the regulatory agencies changed and and my laboratory along with many others around the world for the last five years have been testifying in front of the epa every time they have a public hearing on glyphosate so three times in the last five years, we've been in Washington DC showing, you know, hundreds of peer reviewed science, you know, journal articles that we've produced around how glyphosate is directly causing cancer, directly causing disease, autoimmune disease, all that. Like it's, we've been there, we're doing that. And the answers from the EPA are, well, that doesn't actually fit into a regulatory environment. You guys are talking science. We're not scientists, we're regulators. And so there's been this like kind of, iron curtain put between bureaucracy and science and i don't think you have to dig too far back in our last 3 years as a planet to find out that that curtain is pretty thick like if if your regulators think it's okay to sit down at a restaurant without a mask but if you stand up you need a mask you get a sense of like how unscientific you know the regulatory environment really is and so there's this dense curtain between what's known and what is put out there in the narrative what's there so you have to be aware of that. So why would that be? Why, why would the EPA be protecting a chemical industry? To, are they getting paid by? Well, yeah, they you chase the money. It's a pretty dark story there. But really, I think it, you know, from a if there's an altruistic you know story in it, it's the farmers. I didn't know the plight of farmers until I launched out in in, 19, in 2018 to tell this story. We were making a documentary film to tell the world that glyphosate was causing cancer and you can measure it right in the water of the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River collects 80% of the, the farm runoff in the United States into a single body of water. And so you've got you know 80% of 300 million gallons, uh, or I'm sorry, 300 million pounds of glyphosate being in in a single you know river, so it is a gross amount of farm runoff chemical residues in the Mississippi River, and that has led to the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world in the last 90 miles of the river from Baton Rouge, New Orleans to New Orleans in Louisiana is, is Cancer Alley, and Cancer Alley is defined with five x cancer rates compared to really anywhere else in the developing world. It's horrific. And at the end of the Mississippi river is the largest dead zone in the world. The water dead zone, the ocean dead zone at the end of that thing is larger than the state of Rhode Island. The threatened zone is larger than the state of Texas. Now we've put hundreds of millions of dollars of fisheries and everything else out of business by killing all the life at the end of the Mississippi river. And so that's the documentary we set out to, to improve. And while filming that film, uh, I was exposed almost immediately to soil scientists who were showing differences between organic and non-organic chemical agriculture soil systems. And I was devastated to find out that the organic soils were performing less well than the chemical agricultural soils. And so for a moment, I was like, wait, I thought I was making a film to tell everybody eat organic. And why is organic soil not performing? Why does it look so bad? And the reason was was because, again, that organic label has nothing to do with health. It doesn't have to do with health of the soil. It doesn't have to do with nutrient density of the food. It just says you're not going to spray these chemicals. Instead, you're going to do something else to kill the weeds. And the typical thing is over disking or over plowing the earth, which destroys nutrients and the mycorrhizae of the fungi and everything else. You're destroying the ecosystem through over plowing and then other chemicals that can be added to organic farms. And so realized that that wasn't enough. But fortunately, those same scientists had uncovered the story about regenerative agriculture, which is a change in mentality where instead of waking up to figure out what you need to kill, it's how do I make the soil more vibrant? That's the definition of regenerative agriculture for me. And there's age old areas of subspecializations in this area of of soil care called biodynamic farming or permaculture. These are huge bodies of science, you know, Korean uh, farming practices, They go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so these practices have been known, but are now being rediscovered as the mechanism being soil care instead of just crop production. So organic food is still in the crop production mode of thinking. They're using a different toolbox, and so it's less toxic, but the soil is no better. And so your nutrient density inside of your organic food is unlikely to be much better, maybe even worse than the conventional agriculture and so we we need this massive revolution now to happen in our food system to move away from crop production to soil nurturing. And when we nurture soil, crops grow nutrient-dense. Immune, immune strength is there, so you don't need the herbicides and pesticides because you have strong things. So why is the EPA and all these other regulators so hesitant to ban Roundup or do all these things? It's because the farmer is sitting there saying – I I am stuck now after 50 years of this practice where I can't even get a government loan. I can't get a bank loan without a government protection of USDA crop insurance. And I can't get USDA crop insurance if I'm not growing, you know, uh, GMO crop. And so if I don't have, you know, a track record of success and I tell you, I'm going to suddenly go regenerative and you take my chemicals away from me. I can't get the loan to get my seeds in the ground to get my inputs or whatever I'm going to do. And so there's been this huge trap set for farmers where they are chemical reliant and the system is keeping them stuck on the chemicals. And so they're telling the the you know, lawmakers and regulators, if you take that off the market, there's going to be no food because I can't I can't get the food, I can't get the seed in the ground. Now, even that story's a little bit artificial, obviously, because America doesn't grow its own food anymore. Kansas is our most agricultural state. 90% of the land mass of the state of Kansas is under agricultural growth. Kansas is starving. One in five children go to sleep hungry every night. 20% of children in Kansas are hungry at night because they didn't get enough calories that day. 90% of the state is growing food. It turns out they are not growing food for humans. It is actually growing agricultural outputs that end up at best in a feedlot but much more commonly in uh, ethanol for your gas tank or ethanol and other uh, other carbon materials that end up in the polyesters and plastics of your clothing and textiles and things like that. And so we simply stopped growing food for humans a long time back. And most of the foods that you eat is being grown in Mexico, Peru, you know, Argentina and further flung places. So unfortunately you know we don't grow the food anymore so the arguments about farming and the EPA and all this actually doesn't have much to do with food anymore and so we're really poisoning our river systems so that we can have ethanol in our gas tanks we're poisoning our rivers and the futures of our children so that we can have cheap clothing and and polyesters and the like so it's a real perturbed economy that's 50 years out into the abstract world that has absolutely no sense that you and I would want in our food system or you and I would want as our backyards. It's, It's not how the system has been built. It's been built on cheaper and cheaper commodities for smaller and smaller fractions of revenue or profits for farmers. Farmers have five times the suicide rate than any other career out there. The second career suicide rates behind farmers is actually physicians. So physicians and farmers are killing themselves at multiple multiples of what the general population is killing themselves at. And I think it has perhaps to do with the fact that we both have the same education. We are both farmers and physicians trained to be chemical arbiters of human disease. and, And we are not doing the mission that we set out to do, which was nourish people as farmers and to heal people as physicians. Neither of us are doing that anymore, and it is killing our soul, and we are really suffering a mental health crisis as farmers and physicians in realizing that we are doing the opposite of what we set out to do, and we feel stuck. We feel stuck because the farmer can't get paid unless they're chemically growing their food, and the, the physician can't get paid if he's not chemically treating his patients. And so it's a really deep trap that we have set economically and socially for farmers and physicians globally and so that's why this as a consumer like certainly somebody would do something and the answer is the system is so abstracted out and so corrupted by its belief that we were against nature that nobody can figure out their way way up and and so if the regulators thought there was another solution they probably would let us do that But regulators don't create solutions, they they police damage systems. And unfortunately, physicians don't create health. We police damage systems. Uh, so that's that's how we ended up where we are.
0: Well, that's a very good answer. And I think, like, just to add to it, you know, as a consumer, I lived in Europe for 18 years, and my husband and I just moved back to the states last year, and we didn't have a TV, and then we all of a sudden put one on here, and it was like (laughs) Jamie, my husband's Jamie's name, he's British. He was like, watched the commercial and he was like there was just a medical commercial on and the side effects were like death cancer heart attack like he was like for the actual medicine and like they lifted them out like it was no big thing he like came in he was like what what was that and i was like oh no like i remember from my childhood that was always a thing it was just like you know and so it is time for the consumer to start asking questions because just things like commercials such as that being on primetime television should be like raising alarm flags to everyone that like a doctor would be voluntarily prescribing you something that the side effects almost sound worse than what was wrong with you in the first place.
1: That was my journey actually as a physician. And so, you know, started in 1993, but I was still training by, you know, 2005, seven, I was doing my second subspecialty at that point in endocrinology and metabolism. And by that, by the time you've been a doctor for a few years, you realize the toolbox of, of resources you're given to treat your patients is not working. And a few more years reveals to you that you're doing damage. But it does take that time. I think it takes about 10 years of being in practice before you realize the damage you're doing. And it's not because the damage isn't immediate. It is. As soon as you start um, a statin drug, for example, to lower somebody's cholesterol, as soon as that happens, their metabolism starts to slow down. They start to get, you know, adiposity. They start gaining weight centrally. Their testosterone levels go down. Their sexual function is diminished. Their sleep quality goes down. Like this happens within months of starting a statin drug, and we put people on these things for decades. But the way in which you're trained as a physician is to believe that everybody is stupid. And that's a sad statement. And I really feel guilty that I fell for that. But I was really trained to believe that my patients were stupid. So much so that we are shown over and over again during medical school. We're shown studies, scientific studies that show that a patient coming into a room with a physician will remember 10% of what they're told. So, so those kinds of studies, like they don't even know what you're saying. And even if they did, they can't even remember what you said. And like, and so they show us, you know, all these things, they, they, they show these studies of like, if you tell people to eat healthy, 95% of them don't eat healthy. It's like, well, did you tell them to eat healthy or did you show them how to eat healthy? You know? And so it, it's really this amazing thing where we are brainwashed into thinking that A, people are stupid and B, even yeah. if they were smart, they don't really want to make the effort to be healthy. And I think that was really easy to believe for a long time until you see the flashback from the public becoming things like the biohacking movement and the organic food movement and food, farmers markets and is screaming for an alternative to where we're at right now. And they are willing to do the work. They're willing to do the research on their own. Yeah. And this was really where my world started to pivot as we had created a dietary supplement out of those fossil soils that we had been studying and all that. And the doctors were getting it. I was getting a huge number of functional medicine and alternative doctors to start looking at the science of gut health and understanding it through a new lens and all that was catching but then I found the autism world and we started managing kids with autism on this, these supplements. And I was blown away by how intelligent and deeply researched parents of autistic children are. You cannot find somebody who knows more science on the microbiome than I would say your typical autistic family. They have done deep dives and it's international research. They've looked at what the Japanese have done and they've uncovered all of that, you know, brilliant body of, knowledge that's over there in japan around gut health and neurologic systems and all this and they've uncovered what's going on in europe and it's unbelievable amount of intelligence and root cause you know analysis from these families that are dealing with kids that are suffering in a medical system that just says there's nothing we can do it's just a random occurrence you can there's nothing that caused it there's nothing you can do about it like it's just here and so the, the, it's that mother of invention, that necessity of invention, of of inquiry that has, you know, fortunately spawned in, in the parents of children with disease today. And the amount of cancer we have in children today was just unimaginable when I was in medical school. Like we didn't have whole cities built to children with cancer, but that's what we have today. If you go to Texas Children's Hospital, it's six towers of uh, you know hospitals it's a skyscraper city built for children with cancer and so it's unbelievable the amount of disease from autism to cancer that we have in children under the age of 5 today and this is forcing a, a desperate group of you know parents globally to ask these much deeper questions and so it's it's a a joy and a horror to realize that we are intelligent and we can see what we've done to ourselves but fortunately, we can see our path forward, and and I think as we come together as a global community, saying we aren't going to wait for regulators to dig ourselves out of this, you know, socioeconomic cluster that we've created for farmers or physicians. We're simply going to create the new reality that makes the old one obsolete, and and so it's the Buckminster Fuller pursuit that we're now in globally.
0: Yeah, and I think you know it's really interesting because speaking of Ion Intelligence of Nature, the supplement that you did did create. I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more about how you guys formulated it and how, you know, I think like the idea of like gut health and the gut microbiome and soil health reflecting the health of our microbiome, like this was so far out even a couple of years ago. And now it's actually like, you cannot go to a wellness site or, I mean, even on Instagram without hearing somebody talking about their like gut health and their microbiome and, you know, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there because everybody's decided they're an expert on it but also it's really encouraging that so many people are making this a mainstream conversation to be had. So I guess as someone who is sort of early into this and created something that you felt really was like or is um an incredible solution to it can you speak a little bit about the formulations and what went into ion and and how that you know that became a really powerful tool for you to like understand and would send out other things into the universe that we'll talk about in a bit.
1: Yeah. Fortunately um, I didn't formulate anything or discover anything. Nature revealed itself. And so again, timing of my career, content of my career set me up for this observation that led to the dietary supplement. But uh, I'd been running my nutrition center for a couple of years watching the healthiest foods i could feed my patients namely the cruciferous vegetables kale brussels sprouts broccoli making my patient patients sicker i was watching inflammation markers go up eating kale like it just didn't make any sense i was watching inflammation markers go up when people would be exposed to you know even fermented foods so it was very confusing from a scientific nutrition background to think what well, what's going on here And in that journey, I started to ask the questions about soil and one of my colleagues brought in a paper, 90 page white paper on soil science. And I had seen a lot of white papers in my life. I was, you know, working in labs and all that. Uh, But white papers, typically like five to 15 pages, 90 pages on soil blew my mind. I was like, I didn't even know anybody in the world knew this much or I didn't know the global community knew this much about soil And um, flipping through that, my friend was pointing out this this, uh, substance that was on like page 40. And flipping to that page, it put me into a deja vu moment because my cancer research at UVA had been in mitochondria. I was an endocrinologist looking at metabolism as an access point to to damaging cancer. And so I had been working on cell-cell signaling between mitochondria, which are tiny little bacteria that talk to each other and talk to the human cell. And so, my area of expertise had been in communication down at that that mitochondrial level, And this molecule looked a heck of a lot like a communication network. And the fact that it was sitting in the soil blew my mind. It was a sudden moment where I was realizing like nine thousand years of Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine had been looking to plants for our for uh, for the medical you know impact for the medicine within our food. What if there's a deeper medicine within the soil itself was the aha moment. And so that's when we started measuring and looking at those soil those soil molecules in, in fossil systems. And the reason we went to fossil soils is the earth used to have 20 25 foot deep topsoil levels 55 million years ago when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Topsoil was 20 feet deep. We're lucky to find 20 inches and typically we're not even finding two centimeters of topsoil on the earth right now. And so we had this thriving ecosystem of soil. And so we started looking at those fossil soils because these carbon molecules are very stable. And so the carbon molecules that we went after are the the redox molecule carriers. These are uh, basically the liquid circuit board of biology. This is how communication happens across interspecies systems, complex ecosystems in the soil or in your gut or in your body at large. And so we had uncovered by accident, ultimately, this communication network of life. And so we started extracting those from fossil soils. And it was very quickly evident that when we got oxygen, hydrogen, and some other little tricks around biochemistry to happen, we were able to get that communication network to happen. And the evidence of that communication was when we put it on human cells, they accelerated to levels we had never imagined before their rate of healing and repair. The the discovery was that human health and healing has never been seen to its full potential. We've only been here for a few hundred thousand years. We're talking about 55 million year old soil. And we were able to show that human cells regenerate exponentially faster if they have that intact communication network from millions of years ago. And so you can imagine the excitement that we had then and how much that has grown since then of the realization that humans are just barely scratching the surface of potential in our longevity, in our intelligence, in our capacity for repair and regeneration, our capacity for metabolism, the amount of energy we can hold in a single human body, the amount of energy we can release in that metabolism within that organism. And so our science wasn't just uncovering like a recovery plan from glyphosate, which is an important stepping stone, we were uncovering the the new potential of life when humans learn how to grow soil as we once had it. And so when we started our, our nonprofit, Farmer's Footprint, the excitement was, yes, we're going to show farmers a path forward towards this regenerative future, but we, we can't just be farmers. It has to be... Financiers, It has to be, you know, trucking and distribution and grocers and consumers. We all have to change our behavior into producers. We need to switch from consumer mentality to producer mentality. How do we become a productive element of a global soil system that nurtures life into levels of vitality that we've simply never seen in human history? And so that's been our journey. And it's been extraordinarily exciting. Every bottle of the product we put in the human hand is a human that's about to reach a potential they've never had before because they are so recent on the scene in on the planet and so it's been just a goosebump journey from stem to stern and among the most amazing stories of course are the autism children you know these are the most brilliant minds and i think the most angelic souls on the planet and when they are set loose with the connection to reconnection to nature, as you put their gut health into a level of resonance that's never happened before, the intelligence, these kids are able to demonstrate blows you away, but it's really their human spirit that I think shows our path forward. An autistic child who becomes a highly functioning autistic adult shows something of human joy, human spirit, human ingenuity, human intuition that we've simply either lost a long time ago or perhaps have never had. And so it's been a a beautiful journey into not just soil, not just human biology and its recovery from a chemical world, but really a story of where could we go if we reconnect deep into nature.
0: It's so funny. My mom just read a book. I wanted to say it's called Pony Boy or something like that. And it's about a family of a severely autistic child who just had, you know, reached the end of, of being able to to provide for him. And on a last ditch effort, they heard about this camp in Mongolia where they sent kids to be with the horses and live a much simpler like lifestyle. And they brought their child there. And the difference when his diet was simplified, when he was with the horses, when he was in nature, it was like he became a functioning human where he hadn't been before. And my mom was like, I mean, she said that the book just moves you to tears time and time and time again, you know, all through the human struggle of the beginning to getting him there. And then the story of what happens as he connects to land and, and animals and all of these things. And I think, you know, I've heard you say before that, you know, mother nature just has so much grace and it's, it's so funny how quickly things can happen. Like, you know, my husband and I, we actually bought a farm in, in Maine. That's where we are now. And we both had been in London for 10 years and felt so disconnected and, and really wanted to be in nature again. And we moved here and the people that had been here before they were here 50 years, they mowed six acres every day. There was nothing but like dry drought lawn. They had, you know, gardens cause they were older, but my husband went into the barn. It was like, the chemicals were just insane. You know, he was like, oh my God. So in the last year and a half, we've literally stopped mowing. We moved all the garden beds to a totally different part of the property. We did like no till organic gardens, you know, we've done compost with our seaweed and, and all this stuff. And like within a year and a half, we have meadow here. We have like garter snakes and raccoons and deers and eagle coming back to the space. We have a flourishing garden that's taken off in the soil. That's in a year and a half. So it is just really important, I think, with all of these like, you know, highly distressing conversations in, in this sphere to remind ourselves that like this can actually happen like pretty quickly if we allow nature to do its thing. And I think... It leads me nicely to my next question, Zach, which is, you know, the work that you guys are doing with Farmers Footprint and the support you're giving, because on the flip side of how quickly, like, we've been able to do this with our six acres, which is very small in comparison to a lot of the farmers you guys work with. But, you know, one of the last dinners we had in London was with a a farmer friend, and I think he had something like 300 acres of land in the U.K., They were growing one crop with some dairy farming on the side, very specific. And he got really angry when Jamie brought up this idea of regenerative, you know, because the farm's suffering. They're losing money every year. The top sales are eroding. They're spending so much money on pesticides. And his friend got really angry. He was like, mate, we've spent over like a million dollars on the farm equipment that like, you know, the plows and all of this stuff, we you know, the soil has to have this stuff in it. The seed that we buy, like, where do you buy seed that's not GMO? Like and and he just couldn't see a way out. Like he was like, and he got really angry at us for bringing it up. So we just let it drop. It was like a conversation that wasn't going anywhere. I would imagine you guys have had many a conversation like that. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about? some of the pushback or some of the issues you guys have seen and and how farmers footprint is sort of leading away way out of these queries and quandaries and into a space where like this is doable
1: yeah it's it's super exciting and and the reason farmers footprint came about was you know by we've been making supplements for the world for five years and starting to realize, like, what are we doing? Like, we can't produce enough supplements. And the world certainly cannot afford supplements yet, you know, 95% of the world unable to buy, buy the right food for dinner that night, let alone be able to afford dietary supplements. And the deeper we asked on that, the more we realized, why is there even a class of dietary supplements? You know, like the current dietary supplement, you know industry is somewhere between 70 and 100 billion dollars worldwide how are we spending 100 billion dollars on dietary what is a dietary supplement yeah. a dietary supplement is a crutch for a failing food system and basically it's people who are realizing they don't have enough nutrients in their food and so now they're buying purified nutrients to add to the food that they're eating because they don't they're not getting the nutrients they need to be vital and healthy. And so the fact that we have a dietary self industry is a symptom of a collapse of a food system. And so by 2015, we realized we wanted to be part of a solution and we hope to put ourselves out of business in the next decade or two by creating such a massive information and such a social movement around a real soil system globally that the whole concept of not only our supplements but the entire diet supplement industry becomes something that we look back in history and laugh at of just like that was ludicrous like when did we think we should all be carrying around 62 bottles of nutrients so that we can get through a day like that's ludicrous like when did we stop believing in beets and turnips and cabbage and you know tomatoes and so that this is something i believe we will look back on as a really dark time in history when we found ourselves so separated from nature that we failed to trust her in her capacity to nurture human life when obviously she imagined us into reality in the first place and so this is the journey that we took and and so farmer's footprint set out to really listen for the first couple of years of like, what does the industry need? What do consumers need? How do we switch consumers into producers? How do we do this? And what we found very quickly was the power of story. And it turns out that our understanding of who we are, where we come from and where we're going as humans comes from story. And we've been telling each other stories around fires, since the very origin of humanity 300,000 years ago. And so we are hundreds of thousands of years into understanding story and in the way in that shapes our philosophy and therefore our actions. And so if we really want to change our actions, we need to change our story for humanity and we need to rewrite ourselves into nature. Unfortunately, when you look at the definition of nature in the Oxford English Dictionary, it says that it is the entire firmament of earth, including minerals, Uh, plants you know the animals everything except for humans or anything humans have created period we literally wrote humans and everything we've created out of nature nature is everything other than human or anything we've touched and so this is very concerning that our language has come to recognize that our philosophy of who we are is fundamentally separate from nature and fundamentally broken in our relationship to her And so for that, Farmer's Footprint is set out initially as an awareness campaign around retelling the human story. Um, I do this every day, but fortunately, our filmmakers and storytellers are way better at me waving my scientific hands around saying things. And what we found is that the most powerful way to change the philosophy and ideas of a farmer is to let another farmer tell them of success. And so instead of me telling farmers they're doing the wrong thing by spraying glyphosate, Again, they're trapped. They're stuck. Like you said, the farmer in the UK, I have millions of dollars of equipment and all I have is GMOC. What the heck am I gonna do? And so they can't figure their way out. And a scientist saying you're doing the wrong thing never moves them forward. And so we realize as a nonprofit is the old form of activism of being whistleblowers or, you know, damning a process or a behavior is simply just never gonna change the world. We need to lose judgment on our farmers and the entire farm industry perhaps, lose the judgment and start to become part of the community that can make a solution happen. And so that's been our journey into really partnering with farmers in their stories, understanding where they're coming from and understanding their limitations to becoming the alternative. And what we've found is they keep asking for more resources on storytelling. And so we've created something called The Nest that we're very excited about. And it started with our our Meet the Farmer series, which are short five-minute documentaries. You need to go to the farmer's website and watch some of these. They're so moving. Every one of them makes you cry. When you meet a farmer and hear the real plight that they're in and their joy in actually finding themselves unstuck and starting to be able to just nurture a little bit of land back into health and seeing the ripple effects in their communities and their families and everything else that happened, it's so moving and immediately, as soon as we would do a Meet the Farmer story, their farm, you know, their their little farm would blow up with attention and all this. But we were finding they couldn't convert that to an economic wellness. And so we realized they didn't have access to good direct consumer branding or a marketplace or anything like this. And so the Nest is now a collaborative resource. That brings creatives from around the world around a single farmer to create a brand, to create a direct consumer e-commerce space on their website, often to create a website, uh, create social media, do all of this kind of nurture around them so that they have a viable business that's now free of the USDA, free of the artificial inputs of USDA crop insurance and GMO seed and you know in- bank inputs and all this. And it really gives them an avenue to economic sovereignty and and wellness and so between the meet the farmer series and the nest i think we really have a recipe for success that's that's really got a, a growing track record of of impact and so it's an example of how we can change uh, the philosophy of, of farmers and consumers alike and tie us all back to a soil system that that is capable of nurturing us into a humanity we've never seen before so that's that's the journey of farmers footprint at the moment
0: i Love the idea of the nest. And my husband works in digital design. So I'm going to tell him to come do some work for you guys. Can anyone kind of be involved? Yes. As uh, yeah. As, you know, is it just like go and put forward a portfolio and try and help? Exactly. We a lot of creatives that listen to this podcast.
1: Yeah, we actually, it's called the circle of creatives, is what we've uh, developed there. So if you go to the and superior, look for the circle of creatives. Um, we have over 600, you know, creatives and agencies around the world now that are are wanting to volunteer into that space. So put your information in there. And what happens is we're looking for farmers in your area that that we can partner you with to, to you know, handhold them through that. And it's called the nest because we don't want it to be a home. We want them to go fly. And so there's a moment of time where you can come around them and really create some autonomy and, and resources for them to, to become autonomous. Uh, but we're not there to handhold them. It's really about creating economic vitality and wellness and a foundation for them to leap forward from.
0: Love that. That's just wonderful. And I think, Zach, is kind of one of my final questions. You know, whilst we're on this topic, I is there any farmer, is there like a story you can tell us about like a particular farm or farmer that really didn't feel like this could be done and then it was and it was good? Because I feel like I always try to, as we're wrapping up these podcasts, kind of lead into this idea that like, you know, all of these things that we discussed, they're huge problems, but there are solutions. These methods have been tried and tested to some extent, like, you know, and I feel like if there was an anecdote that you'd be willing to share, I think everybody would love to hear that.
1: Yeah, so many amazing ones have come out, but um, the one that's coming to mind right now that I think really captures the essence of, of what our team is capable of at Farmers Footprint, and uh, just hats off to Leah. She's just an amazing filmmaker and storyteller, and Jesse Gardner uh, creates so much of the written content in those films, and they really get to know these farmers so intimately to be able to tell these stories as well as they do. Um, but the uh, one that comes to mind that they, they really invigorated and, I think, changed me uh, in watching it was uh, a single mom or a distressed household mother in in North Carolina, I think it is. And uh, she had kids moving into their teen years and she's watching the the drug abuse, the addiction, the gang violence and all this in the inner city environment and uh, decides she wants a different path. And she finds backyard gardening as an initial kind of path forward. And then starts this regenerative business with products and uh, our team heard about her and flew out and and shot for you know all day long interviewing and hours and hours of content and Leia tends to stay up that night when she's like in the juice of it and in the energy of it and do her initial editing cuts all all the same night so she stayed up all night long editing cutting cutting and got up the next morning um, and went back to the farm and opened up her laptop and showed this woman, the, the the rough cut of the film that would come out and midway through this film she just starts crying this woman is crying and gets to the end in tears and she turns to leia and says i had no idea that i'm so beautiful <laughs> that i think really for me captures the whole thing of why food even like why do we even care about humans why do we care if they're healthy why do we care It's because we have the capacity to see beauty. And if we, for a moment, can see the beauty within ourselves, what a different humanity we're going to express to this planet that is currently suffering under the deep wound that we believe ourselves not to be beautiful. We believe ourselves to be separate from nature. And we can sit there in awe of the sunset every night, but we never turn that sense of awe towards ourselves, And we sit there in a, a stupor of fear, guilt, and shame around who we think we are, when in fact, we are just beautiful. And that's what I think we're going to ultimately do, not just for Farmer's Footprint, but as we really start to tell the re the rehumaning of, of ourselves, is that we are a beautiful species, and we are likely positioned very uniquely in the cosmos with our five senses that give us the perception of separateness from nature, that give us the ability, therefore, to see nature differently. When we go to watch the sunset, there's no other species watching that with us. The monkeys don't turn around and watch the African sunset. The birds don't stop on the California coast to watch the sunset. We stop and we watch the sunset. What is the deal with humans? Why can we see beauty so well? It's because we have the five senses and the consciousness that we might call an ego that separates us from that world. And it's a bit like the archimedes thing if you give me give me a platform i'll move the earth that lever if you give me a platform away from nature i'll be able to see you and i'll tell you how beautiful you are and that's i think the gift and the vulnerability of being human as we can believe ourselves be separate or realize we've been given a special pedestal in which we can see the beauty and therefore we step into our full purpose when you see beauty, you resonate in a frequency that we've come in the English language to a very reductive word called love. You resonate in love when you see beauty. If you feel unloved by the people around you, by your spouse or your family or your coworkers, it's because you're not seeing your own beauty and you're not resonating in the frequency by which you would be recognized. And so if you feel out of love, if you don't know what it feels like to love something else, go look for its beauty and you will fall deeply in love. And so this is what we're going to do best as farmers footprint, as circle creatives, as storytellers, as consumers who are becoming producers, we are going to realize that we are beautiful and the future of humanity is bright.
0: Love that. And then I I always ask everybody that comes on the podcast, you've kind of just answered it yourself, but you know, I always say like, what is the thing that is making you feel the most hopeful? But if you don't mind, I'm going to actually ask you in a certain context. Um, So I was, there's this guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Have you ever heard of a guy called Gaz Oakley in the UK? He was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll send it to you when we're done. You would love it. So he was like a vegan influencer in London, really great guy and then moved to Wales. He was having loads of mental health issues, moved to Wales, started his own homestead. He's got like millions of followers on YouTube and, you know, he's turned his YouTube channel. He still cooks, but it's all about what he's growing in his garden. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful expression of of a young man changing his life. But he's very aware that like, you know, not everyone's going to do that. Right. But he was saying the other day in a video that when he touches the soil, like he can actually feel a response within himself. And he was like, and I'm not just making that up. There are studies that like, when you put your hands in the soil, something about the microbiome there connects to your microbiome or whatever. And I was talking about it over dinner the other night and Jamie just come in from the garden and he was like, it's funny. I can, he he'll sit in front of his laptop all day for his work, but he was like, I can go out to the garden for five minutes, do some weeding and pick food. And I come back in a totally different mindset. And I'd love to have you pick up on that because I feel like you know what I'm talking about. And I wonder if there is any scientific basis to the fact that something as simple as like touching the soil, being with the soil can actually have huge impacts on our mental health. Because I feel like it's something we talk about all the time is, this mental health crisis, it's, it's, it's right there alongside the health crises, right? It's like the one thing we've t- we've danced around it with this podcast, but we haven't touched upon it directly. It's like, so many people have anxiety. So many people have severe depression, suicide rates are going up in young women so much. Like, and I feel like anything that we can think of as solutions in this way that aren't medicating use or you know, getting people into years and years and years of chronic therapy or whatnot is great. And when I heard that, I was like, I'd love to ask somebody about that. And now I've got you here. So I want to ask you about just simply touching the earth and like what that actually means and how that is something that's really hopeful for us as, as a species that's dealing with so many simultaneous issues
1: Yeah, Uh, you touched on a little bit earlier around just the speed at which you guys have recovered, you know, a six acre, you know, piece of property that had been desolated in its biodiversity, and you brought it back in a year and a half. Uh, The speed of healing is so much faster than the speed of death. And, and so I really want to emphasize this to everybody that you can't believe the speed of healing when you connect to source. And in this case, source is earth, you are indigenous to earth. It doesn't matter which you know, celestial body or constellation. You think you might be from Pleiadian or otherwise you are of earth. You are of this place and your biology is deeply innate to this earth. And when you become disconnected from that, you die. And when you reconnect, you heal at a speed so much faster than death. And so this is the excitement that I have is that when you literally do go touch that nature, immediately things start happening at the biologic level. And it actually happens before the biology. It happens in the physics realm. And so in the quantum physics realm, which happens in millionths of a second, the act of your skin touching the earth transforms your age. The advent of the rubber-soled shoe separated us from earth in the 1960s, and it was the beginning of inflammation in a new way in our bodies. We had certainly known inflammation from over-damage and all this, but we suddenly, as a population, isolated ourselves from the biggest anti-inflammatory that humans have access to, which is Mother Earth itself. Mother Earth is covered in a negative charge envelope that, that is, is a whole field of electrons that charge the surface of the planet. And so it's a negative charge, electrons. It turns out that a health is equal to the amount of negative charge you have in the body. Inflammation or acid is positive charge. And so the more positive charge you have in the body, the more disease and inflammation you have, the more negative charge, the more resilience, regeneration, and health you experience. The earth has an infinite supply of negative charge. And so the moment that your husband goes out and touches a tomato plant, he's grounding into an electrical field that immediately changes his vitality, immediately makes him more youthful, immediately changes his neurologic function. And it happens in a millionth of a second and so divide one second by one million and you get the speed of healing here touch that with your feet and things really accelerate in an exciting way because your feet are designed each little section of the foot as the reflexology map shows is connected to an internal organ and so when you walk barefoot through a meadow and you feel real soil under your feet you are supercharging every organ in your body in that millionth of a second that speed of light delivery of of electrons into every organ system in your body and so don't go touch the earth for a moment and you get younger this is why everybody feels better a couple of days into a beach vacation your shoes finally come off you go walk on silica which is the best conductor that the planet has ever devised and suddenly you feel younger and you feel more cheerful and you feel you can't remember why you were so stressed at work and then in the end of your week you're like i have to go back to that like It looks like going back to Mordor or something because you're going to have to put those shoes back on, separate yourself from nature and go out back into the darkness. And so that the healing happens as soon as you touch that earth, whether it be your barefoot in the sand, your, your barefoot in the garden, or even your hand on the plant in the garden. It doesn't have to be your feet. Touch the earth. And so that's where the healing begins. But then a nice study was done uh, trying to actually validate that 30-second rule about dropping food or something like that. That If it, you pick it up in 30 seconds, there's no bacteria on it. So they did a nice little study looking at whether or not the 30-second rule was correct. And it turns out it's a three-minute rule. So you drop something on the ground, it takes three minutes for the microbiome to start to, you know, orient to the new object. And so while it takes a millionth of a second to get the negative charge from the planet, your microbiome starts to be uh, adapted within three minutes of touching the garden. And so so you spend 30 minutes out there walking around the yard, watering plants, pulling weeds, doing whatever you're doing. The microbiome in the air, the microbiome in the soil, the microbiome on the plants is starting to inform your gut metabolism, your gut microbiome, your biodiversity as a species. And this is diversifying your ecosystem into something more vibrant. And again, that rate of healing faster than the rate of death. And it it was really playing in my mind when you were telling the story of Pony Boy, because that book is capturing something that was proved out in the, the American Gut Project, which is poorly named because much of the study is done in Africa. Um, but looking at the microbiome of hunter-gatherer tribes in, in, in Western Africa has given us a window into what an ideal microbiome looks like in a human gut. And it is the most biodiverse spot on the planet is the human colon in its, in its connection to nature. Our colon is uniquely designed to hold more biodiversity, more species per cubic centimeter than any other ecosystem on the planet. And for that long other story, we get intelligence. But that complex ecosystem is informed directly by that staying connected to nature. And so these hunter-gatherer tribes are walking barefoot. They're mostly naked. They're engaging with their food system very physically. They're hunting and gathering. They're gathering bushels of you know, fruit or grains and then carrying them you know hours or days back to, to their village they're they're hunting zebra for days and then they're quartering those zebra and carrying them uh, the hides on their shoulders you know all the way back to camp for days and then they're preparing the zebra they're they're removing the hides they're preparing the meat they're doing this stuff and they're all over each other there's a physical you know connection the children are climbing naked all over the adults who just came back from the hunt and they're all interacting with it and it's been found that the dominant species of uh, bacteria that accounts for so much of the anti-inflammatory properties in the gut of these hunter-gatherer tribes is only found on the hides of zebra. And so as you were talking about that child riding on bareback on a horse in Mongolia, he is touching microbiome that he has so long forgotten, has so many generations been disconnected from. So putting that child, not just back in nature, but specifically back on the hide of a horse He's getting microbiome back in his gut that no American has. And so this is this is where my excitement gets really invigorated. We are scratching our surface of understanding how directly we are connected to nature and how immediate her give back is. This is a gifting economy between species that we would call life. And so this is where we're at. And uh, I, I believe in 50 years, we're going to look back and find out that we averted our own extinction and have recovered the planet. And it's now become the most verdant and green planet in history of of perhaps the entire planet, let alone humanity, because we put ourselves in line with the creative capacity of the planet. And we saw ourselves as co-creators with the elephants and the zebra and the horse we saw ourselves as becoming part of the ecosystem rather than at war with it. And it, we took down the fences and we started realizing everything belongs to everybody in the sense that nutrients are there to, to nourish every sovereign being. And in our sovereignty, each individual, we become a real community and we respect one another and we each hold each other's space, reverent, sovereign and respected. And for that. We, we develop wisdom. And for that, we start to vibrate in, in love with one another and seeing each other's beauty.
0: And my final question, because that is such an amazing answer, is you feel optimistic that this will happen.
1: It's already happening. It's already happening. And so, you know, Project Biome is our overarching nonprofit that holds Farmer's Footprint. And at Project Biome, we are working on what, what is the original birth of species on the planet. And the birth canal runs from, from basically just south of Durban, South Africa, to up through Egypt, through Giza and the pyramids there, all the way up through Stonehenge in England. And so it's this one meridian that runs uh, the the earth and that longitudinal line is the energetic and biodiversity you know corridor for life that it has emerged on this planet the microbiome humans all of us have come off this one meridian and so we are studying how we can reinvigorate that meridian and how we can be part of the solution as humans and so project biome is working on that big vision of how do we regenerate a, a birth canal for the planet And it turns out that nature is already mounting her her attack or her her opportunity. And what she's doing is inspiring the elephants to proliferate. Elephants don't have a predator. And so they always match their food system in in the rate at which they procreate. And mysteriously, 10 years ago, the elephants of Botswana and South Africa started to reproduce at a rate never seen before. And they have now overpopulated by something like 350,000 elephants in excess in this very small territory of Botswana and South, northern South Africa. And they are decimating their food system. They've destroyed the, the whole forest system of Botswana and they've literally leveled the country because there are so many fences keeping them from moving. But nature has responded with 300,000 elephants. And I was actually found out about this because I was asked if I would join an international group willing to be witness to the euthanasia of elephants. And I was like, wait, we're euthanizing elephants. And they were trying to figure out how to kill hundreds of thousands of elephants, which would be an ecological disaster because those carcasses are so huge. And they know they would create disease and there'd be all kinds of problems if they'd kill that many elephants. And so in that crisis I was like wait what's going on and and as I started thinking from my perspective of soil systems I started calculating how much how much organic material in the form of of stool does an elephant create and it turns out that every elephant can create 25 tons of organic material per acre per year that it touches and so it's just amazing And if you multiply 25 tons of carbon material by 300,000 elephants per year per acre you start to realize, oh my gosh, it is afoot. This planet is getting ready to rebirth itself. The birth canal is warming up, is going into its contractions perhaps, and the elephants are gonna march that continent when humans finally take down our fences or die, and then elephants simply knock them down. And those elephants are going to march on Africa and they're going to recarbonize North Africa. And the biggest desert in the world is going to go back to the biggest grassland in the world, which it was just a thousand years ago. And so our grasslands are going to recover on this planet and North Africa is going to go green and the planet will go back into a birth cycle. And just as happens with every extinction, it gets more beautiful every time, more intelligent every time. And so it is already afoot. The game is afoot and there are people aligning themselves with that mission globally. And so Dial in with us at Project Biome and help us, you know, tell that global story. Dial in with us locally with Farmer's Footprint. We have Farmer's Footprint US, Australia, UK. Uh, We'll be launching New Zealand soon, South Africa, et cetera. So get engaged with the food system, Circle of Creatives, The Nest, get engaged there and help us to imagine ourselves into a story of co-creation with the elephants where, where the new earth births itself and we get to be witness to that beauty
0: love that well thank you so much Zach and all of those links will be included below and this is just the first conversation of a few to come all about regeneration across all areas of sort of human activity and production so I can't wait to get into it and this has been an amazing introduction so thank you and thank you for everything you've done for us it's it's a fantastic I don't know It's a fantastic thing that you've started, and I love that it's so full circle. So there's places for everyone in this.
1: Well, thank you. I'm excited about what you guys are doing as a platform. You're creating a a holding place for so many great brands and so many great stories to come to light. I'm so excited that you have Alice Waters on this program and all the other speakers you've arranged here with the Firms Footprint team. I'm just thrilled to see this group of multifaceted problem solvers. And, And that's really the point is there's no doctor or scientist that can solve this crisis. It's going to take all of us from our different skill sets, our different perspectives, our different companies, our different products, all the ingenuity of humanity is going to have to come into this solutioning together uh, to create that future that we can all feel is possible.